Section 7 of Stories of the First American Animals. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Mack, Tucson, Arizona. Stories of the First American Animals by George Langford. Section 7. Eohippus the Dawn Horse. This was my second summer in the badlands of the Bighorn Basin, that vast expanse of rugged country which lies nestled among the Bighorn, Shoshone, and Wind River Mountains of western Wyoming. I was a hunter of extinct animals, and the badlands were my hunting grounds, particularly that portion of the Bighorn Basin which borders the Gray Bull River. The sun had not yet emerged from behind the eastern hills when I left my headquarters at the Y.U. Ranch and rode off northeastward on horseback along the right bank of the Gray Bull River. Besides my sleeping bag and provisions, I carried a hand pick and a leather bag. The latter was for transporting small specimens. One peculiarity of the Wasatch Rocks was that the fossil bones were those of comparatively small animals. Naturally, this relieved the difficulty of transporting them very materially, for in the badlands where horse and pack saddle were the only means of conveyance, the problem of bringing away large specimens was a most perplexing one. However, the particular object of my search was not large. My real mission in the Bighorn Badlands was to find the petrified remains of a four-toed horse. Not a few bones, but an entire skeleton. One whole season and thousands of dollars had already been vainly spent. I was now in the midst of my second effort. If necessary, I was to make a third. Twenty-five thousand dollars had been set aside, and I was to use all of it, if necessary, in securing the complete fossil skeleton of a four-toed horse. Day after day, month after month, I had ridden my cow pony through the sagebrush over hills, through gullies, exploring every foot of the Bighorn Basin, where the exposed rock layers gave chance of finding what I sought. I discovered many petrified bone fragments, some whole bones, but no complete skeletons. It would seem as though any that might have been entombed within the rocks must have been ground to bits by the weight of the mountains piled over them. It was a wearing, tiring, and apparently hopeless quest. Nevertheless, I persisted, hoping each day that my hand would be the first to pluck a four-toed horse from the tomb where it had lain buried for possibly four million years. Then, as each day went by without result, I pinned my hopes on the next, and so it went for one whole season and the half of another, up to the time I now tell of. Much money and effort had been apparently wasted, but as I saddled my pony for another journey into the Badlands, my former discouragements were forgotten in the renewed hope and determination that followed upon the heels of a night's comfortable rest and a most appetizing breakfast. That morning I was up and doing earlier than usual. A driving rain had kept me indoors, idle and restless, the whole previous day. 
my journey to the fossil-bearing ledges was a tedious one because of the sticky clay mud which dragged hard on my pony's feet. As I rode along the slopes between the river and the Tatman Mountain, we had several tumbles on the slippery incline. However, we arrived safely beneath the ledges at last. Here I dismounted, picketed my pony, and climbed up the rocks on foot. The air now fairly sizzled with steaming heat, for by this time the sun was well up, and its hot rays smote mercilessly upon the dripping ledges. Only those who have roamed over this shadeless region, bare of vegetation except for the ever-present sagebrush, can appreciate the discomforts of a hot, sticky day in the bighorn badlands. Had it not been for my broad-rimmed felt hat, my brains would have stewed in my head. As I mounted to the upper ledges, my every step had to be taken with the utmost care. The steep, slippery slope offered insecure footing at best, and a single misstep would have meant a bad tumble to the ground below. I was a fool, or at least I was according to W., who said of my hunting, None but a crazy man would climb around those rocks looking for busted bones. However, it was my business being so crazy, and on this particular day, the heat and humidity made me crazier than ever. I was squirming my way along the face of the cliff, wishing myself in Hades, or any other comparatively cool place, when I caught sight of something that made me forget instantly all personal discomfort. There, partly protruding from the rock above my head, was a fossil jawbone about four inches long. The row of black, shining teeth resembled a string of semi-precious stones. They looked like jewels to me, but then, as W. had said, I must have been crazy. Also, the day was frightfully hot. With my pick, I chipped the enveloping stone away bit by bit until finally I had partly uncovered a little skull less than six inches in length. It was a perfect beauty. Did I rest content with that? No, indeed. I cut away the matrix at the base of the skull and was rewarded by finding the neck bones. Chopping farther along, I encountered part of a shoulder blade. I became greatly excited as the work progressed. My sensations were those of a miner who, having struck a gold-bearing vein, was digging his way into a nest of nuggets. I continued stripping away the stone until I had brought to light the lower half of one front leg. Next came the foot. I stared like one in a trance. W. would have pronounced me crazy beyond the shadow of a doubt. Could he have seen me at that moment? It was a wonderful little foot, about the size of a fox terrier's. But the toes, four of them, were tipped not with claws, but tiny horse-like hoofs, no bigger than my little fingernail. Talk about pedigree. My own faded into insignificance. My pony, picketed far below me, could, if he knew how, have traced his back several million years. There was the record, clear and indisputable. I had unlocked it from the ancient archives 
signed and sealed by nature's own hand. No expert could have forged that record or counterfeited the evidence of its great antiquity. That evidence was the fossil skeleton of the patriarch, a little creature not much larger than an Airedale and wearing not one but four hoofs on each of his forefeet. I had found my four-toed horse at last. A whinny sounded below me. I looked down and saw that my pony was watching me. He looked every inch the aristocrat he was, whereat I felt humbled. What were my few hundred years of lineage to his millions? A wave of dizziness suddenly reminded me that the sun had become undurably hot, so much so that the steel band of my stone pick burned my hand. The heat, together with my excitement and labors, had so exhausted me that I saw the wisdom of descending to the ground for shade and rest. So down I went, taking the little stone skull with me for safekeeping. It was but the work of a few moments to free it from the friable matrix and place it in my bag. This done, I carefully marked the spot where the balance of the skeleton lay buried and descended the cliffs. When on solid ground once more, I led my pony into the shade of an overhanging ledge and sat down beside him. Here I rested and refreshed myself with a bit of food and drink. The combination of relaxation and nourishment made me feel much better and so delightfully lazy that I settled back against the rock, gazing dreamily into space through half-closed eyes. My pony lowered his head and sniffed at my bag. Oh ho, I said, allow me to introduce your hundred thousandth great-grandfather. I met him only this morning. With that, I reached into the bag and drew forth the little stone skull. My pony eyed it curiously. Reverently, I thought. He appeared much interested. It was long ages ago, I said. These badlands were a low, marshy region, quite different from now. Even the animals were different. All were dwarfs. They disappeared in time, and no one knows what became of them. Everything has changed greatly since the old days. Even this little horse, his teeth, his bones, his four toes have become one, and he has grown so large. I paused. The glare on the surface of the Grey Bull River was so dazzling, I gazed from it to the distant hills. I was not at all startled to observe that the latter were slowly settling down. At the same time, the valley was rising to meet them. Gradually, the land surface flattened and smoothed itself out. Trees emerged, forming a green forest background. Grass, bushes, and other vegetation unfolded toward me like a vast green carpet. Not a breath stirred the air. All was deathly still. At first, the vast panorama upon which I gazed seemed absolutely destitute of life. I felt as though I had been suddenly transported into the land of nobody and nowhere. But as my eyes grew accustomed to my unfamiliar surroundings, gradually I became conscious of a figure standing before me. It was that of an animal which moved and breathed, a small creature no larger than a fox with a slender head, graceful figure, and dainty feet. 
the latter aroused my particular interest. Each toe, four on the front and three on the hind feet, was tipped with a miniature hoof. The sight of those little feet affected me strangely. I could only sit and stare at them until I finally became aware that their owner was, in his turn, staring at mine. I managed to find the use of my tongue. Who are you? I asked. Eohippus the Dawn Horse. Oh, and for a moment that was all I could say. It was something of a shock, although a pleasant one, to find myself in the presence of a living four-toed horse. You interest me very much, I stammered. Four-hoofed toes. One rarely sees so many on a horse's foot. Only three on my hind ones, Eohippus corrected me very graciously. You, I see, have only one. He was looking at my boots as he said this. They appeared to puzzle him. He made a pretty picture as he stood there watching them with his head cocked on one side. I was about to speak again when I noticed a small animal passing near us. I thought it was a weasel at first, but although slightly resembling one, it was quite different. Clumsier in appearance and actions, it paid no attention to me, but watched the dawn horse closely as it slouched slowly past. No mistaking that look, it boded ill for my companion. The latter had by this time espied the evil-looking stranger. He fidgeted uneasily and then sighed with relief as the intruder crawled away and disappeared into the grass. I scented complications. Eohippus, as I could see, was much disturbed. Who was that, I asked? A killer. A flesh-eating animal, you mean? Eohippus shuddered. You think so? he asked timidly. I can hardly bring myself to believe it, and yet something tells me that you may be right. Of course I am right. That little weaselly fellow could not eat anything but flesh if he tried. The dawn horse appeared stunned, but in a moment he recovered himself. Do you think that the bear cats will ever fall into such evil ways? he inquired anxiously. Bear cats? The name puzzled me. I thought myself familiar with every animal that lived under the sun or moon. But here was a new variety. What is a bear cat? I asked. Something like a killer. Something like a grass eater was the answer. Which does it resemble most? Killer, Eohippus replied. When we first came to this country, the bear cats were grass eaters and looked like them. But time has changed that. Now they slink and crawl and spend their time away from us and with the killers. The latter are an evil lot. It is said that they are not above eating the flesh of other animals. However, they never ate any one of us that I know of. That last statement seemed to give my companion no little comfort. The ones killed and eaten would hardly be in a position to tell of their experiences, I suggested. You are being imposed upon. The killers are picking you out one by one, and I suspect that your former grass-eating friends, the bearcats, are getting the bones and leavings after the killers have gorged themselves. 
From what you say, I'm guessing that a bear cat is a sort of hyena animal. Eohippus appeared greatly disturbed by my remarks. You mean that they and the killers are our enemies? I am sure of it. Why, that means war, Dawn Horse exclaimed. Beast fighting beast. What are we to do? Do? Well, now, really. I pondered, and as I did so, a great wave of pity swept over me. This pretty little creature is the horse, I thought to myself. True, he is but the seed, but what if his growth is blighted, and he is not permitted to develop? Man's best friend and helper would be lost to him forever. It was a pretty state of affairs. The killers had long ago broken away from the grass-eaters. The bear-cats were now doing the same thing. Eohippus would be overwhelmed by his enemies unless someone warned him of his danger. Who but I could warn and watch over him? What a responsibility! The future of the horse was now in my keeping. With this sudden realization of responsibility, a terrible feeling of loneliness came over me. Here was I, a solitary man, come into being millions of years before my time. Never could I look upon a human face. I had no friends, none but the dawn horse. I vowed that henceforth I would devote my life to him and him alone. By guiding him safely through this trying period, mine would be the greatest service that now lay within my power to perform for the benefit of all mankind. End of section 7 Recording by Tom Mack